The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the Frankenmuth Historical Association. Some episodes may contain subjects that are uncomfortable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hey there. Welcome into the Historians and Lederhosen podcast. Brought to you by the Frankenmuth Historical Association in Frankenmuth, Michigan. Here, we explore the history of Frankenmuth, Michigan, and more. We like to keep it fun and casual, so sit back, relax, while you learn some fun history with us. Prost! Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Historians and Lederhosen. If you haven't already, I'd like to encourage our listeners right off the bat, uh, find us online at frankmuthmuseum.org, Facebook at Frankmuth Historical Museum, Twitter at Muth History, and Instagram and TikTok at frankmuth underscore historical. That's where you can find us. We're doing a lot of fun stuff on there. Um, and check us out. Check us out. So many of you also might know Frankmuth for its tourism. Yeah? Yeah. Garrett, Malcolm, would you I've, say that? I've toured here. I think one of the <laughs> one of the first genuinely surprising facts I found out about Frankenmuth is that it is the number one tourist destination in Michigan, and it beats Mackinac Island. I could not believe that when I saw it. Yeah, it is pretty wild when you start to to think about that, especially from a statistics perspective. So, everyone that's been to Frankenmuth, um, and for those of you that haven't, um, our town's architecture, celebrations, culture, it all screams Bavaria. So much so that Frankenmuth is also known. It has the nickname kind of officially, as Frank Moose Little Bavaria. But it wasn't always this way. Um, so in fact, until the 1950s, Frankenmuth was your, I would say, fairly ordinary American town, at least from kind of an outward appearance, right? Albi with pretty deep German roots. Um, so we had this question of, okay, so when did Frankenmuth really become Little Bavaria? I think we all had this question as we kind of first came in um, to our roles here at the FHA. So... We wanted to do a little investigation and wanted to make that an episode of the podcast. So let's do it. Um, Malcolm, I'm going to turn it over to you. So where did it all begin? Yeah, I mean, so it basically begins in the middle of the 20th century, which is really fascinating because it's not all that much longer after World War II, which I think I was the most surprised by when Same. we started looking into this. Um, you see Frankenmuth, as we've talked about in other episodes, to have this uniquely, um, well, not unique, but uh, a concerted shift towards Americanization during World War I and II, a real rejection of what was happening in Europe with uh, Germany proper. And uh, you see this real shift and intentional um uh, this intentionality, basically, of Frankenmuth to be distinctly American and on the American side. But once World War II kind of settles, that's when you see the shift back almost to those kind of German roots and that celebration of that German culture and history, which I think is actually really quite interesting. So, um, basically, I mean, long story short, everyone credits uh, William Tiny Zender <laughs> as the guy that brought Bavarianization. Um, and, and kind of the, the common story goes is that William Tiny Zender was basically credited with the Bavarianization of Main Street. Yes, Bavarianization is a term we're going to throw out a couple <laughs> times here. It's our own academic. Getting um, academic on this podcast. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> this is an academic episode. I'm trying intentions. to get published, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, Tiny was named the manager of the Fisher Hotel in 1950 after it was purchased by the Zenders, who also owned the iconic Zenders restaurant. So if you've come to, to uh, Main Street, the big white building with the neon sign, that's Zenders Restaurant and across the street was Fisher Hotel, which they purchased in 1950 and made uh, Tiny 
the the manager. And so after that, he decided, along with his uh, wife and his brother, that um, they wanted to add new atmosphere and a new kind of vibe to Fisher Hotel. So they actually closed it down and did some pretty significant renovations to the architecture and the facade of the building. And then they reopened it in 1959 as the Bavarian Inn, which uh, still stands today, which everyone recognizes, you know, Zender's Restaurant and the Bavarian Inn, the Bavarian Lodge, it obviously really takes off from there. But what's most interesting is that while most of the credit uh, to the start of the Bavarianization of Frankenmuth is actually uh, to Tiny and the opening of the Bavarian Inn, because then that also starts the Bavarian Festival in 1959, he actually credits it to Wally Brunner. Oh. Of Christmas Store. Yeah. So, um, Christmas Store. Christmas, <laughs> Christmas Store. <laughs> Um, so, and the, the reason I found this out is because I actually heard it from the, from themselves, from their own mouths. So I found this, uh, this older documentary that's on YouTube that was produced by Brunner's called A Decorative Life, The Wally Brunner Story. And in it, Wally Brunner explains how he designed his home in Frankenmuth in the Alpine style, as he referred to it as, um, that he was familiar with through uh, from Europe. So he was making sketches, and he actually designed the exterior of his home, and Irene, his wife, designed the interior. So they designed this home together in Frankenmuth. And then uh, later in the documentary, it cuts to a talking head interview with Tiny Zender, who talks about seeing these early sketches that Wally was doing and putting together and he thought and he by his own words he was like that's really cool I think we should like start incorporating that around the town so he was actually inspired by Wally Brunner's uh, architectural designs for his home to then apply those to the Bavarian Inn Obviously, from there, uh, Tiny and uh, his brother Eddie and uh, his wife Dorothy uh, not Dorothy uh, oh uh, yeah Dorothy oh. Second guess myself. I should never second guess myself. I'm always right. You are always right. <laughs> um, basically, from there, they encouraged other businesses along Main Street in the downtown area to really adopt this alpine style of architecture. So that's where you see like the kind of the pointed roofs, the the slats um, across the windows, the kind of the X formations on the windows, and then those where it kind of looks like fake mudded wall with the with the kind of the the trim slats on it that look mm-hmm. like wood. It, these are all kind of those are um, aspects of those styles. So they really encouraged basically everyone across the downtown to start really um, incorporating that. And the result was that, you know, th- it became this really homogenized view of the downtown where everyone was kind of incorporating this architecture. And eventually the city council actually began mandating that uh, buildings, you know, all start kind of uh, conforming to the style, which uh, makes it so that when you come to Frankenmuth very uniquely, the 7-Eleven, the Kroger, and even the McDonald's, these giant national corporations, all conform to the Bavarian Alpine architecture in town, which is so weird I and think, cool. <laughs> like, just for, like, an outsider's perspective, someone who's maybe not from Frankenmuth or doesn't even know what, like, Alpine architecture is supposed to look like, the most shocking one is the McDonald's. <laughs> the McDonald's is just, like... Like all these other ones, you start to see like sort of a pattern. They follow the same sort of like color scheme, um, which is, I'm going to get into it in my section a little bit, not necessarily true to like traditional Bavarian architecture, but the one that's like the most traditional and most like true to that style is McDonald's. And it's just like (laughs) baby blue castle looking thing. Yeah. Like it's, it's incredible. I'm curious, like, did they have to get like special permission McDonald's to be able to make a McDonald's look like this? Because I feel like McDonald's probably pretty standard. Like, nope, here's what you're going to do. I really wonder that because 
we don't see that standardization of McDonald's until just recently because they now all look like this box. You know what I mean? Yeah. But they did before, too, because they used to have kind of like a hut look to right. them yeah. with the arches in the front, you know? Right. Um, so, like, yeah, McDonald's has always had, like, a fairly uniform look to their buildings. So right. I, I wonder that, too, if uh, if they had to get special ordinance from McDonald's corporate, too. Right. <laughs> from Ronald himself. From Ronald himself, yeah. I, I thought they were going to talk to the hamburger mayor or whatever, you know? The mayor of Hamburger Town, whatever the character the is. Burgermeister. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but Nathan brought up, uh, you know, kind of the moniker of Little Bavaria, and we're really not sure where that comes from or when that's kind of officially adopted. Um, our best theory is that it was just sort of a colloquial that caught on between locals and visitors. And then, uh, but we do know that by the 1980s, it we do start seeing it prominently actually on um, the city's tourism advertising that's produced by the city. So um, again, it's not very clear as to when it officially adopted the moniker of little bavaria but we do start seeing it kind of intentionally used for for marketing and for advertising and um in through the 80s and really it's um you start to see the homogenization through the 60s and you know early 70s but it's the 80s where it seems like the whole town is really on board of we are going to be a tourist destination we are the, it was super right. intentional it was not an accident that the town looks like this or, or it definitely wasn't an accident that it is the number one tourist destination in Frank, in uh, Michigan it was very intentional to make this place what it is today when you were looking through things did you find any specific time when the city started to put the like bilingual names of like city institutions because the one that I know like notice most is when you're coming in on Genesee and you see the post office like that says post stomped like right on the side but there are a couple of other of those like city institutions that they have both the German and like yeah. Americanized name I didn't see anything quite like that in the late 60s, they actually started bringing in consultants um, and doing uh, city reports, basically, with consultants of what works about our city, what doesn't work, what can be improved, what will bring more people, what will, what will bring what kind of people. Um, there was a lot of heavy uh, studies done in the town with outside consultants. Um, again, uh, I can't understate it. It was so intentional mm -hmm. that this place became a tourist destination. It was not an accident, and then yep. they capitalized on it. There was a very concerted effort um, right. to make this a tourist destination, and you see that in some of these reports that we've gone through, which is really interesting. And unfortunately, they don't really reveal the uh, the history of the Bavarianization. Like we pulled, Nathan sure. and I pulled a couple of these reports up, and we were looking through them. And it makes mention of Bavarianization and the intentional homogenization of the of the uh, like the view and the look, mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't talk about where it came from or why or how. It just says that it should be done to kind mm -hmm. of. It feels cheap to say like theme park it a little bit, but it's mm -hmm. almost kind of that idea of just making it all cohesive. Um, sure. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of studies on what to do with the sidewalks, how big the sidewalk should be. If uh, there should be planters all along Main Street, like you see today, how big the street should be, how many crosswalks should there be? Like, they went into all of the details. You can also mm -hmm. really see the effects because this is, like, Main Street, that area, is one of the most, like, well-planned city streets that I have ever seen. Just, like, like you can you mentioned the sidewalks, like, they're one of the most comfortable sidewalks that I've ever like walked on. Like 
width wise and Some things like that. Squishy sidewalks. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about like the yeah, of course. But when I walk on sidewalks, very differently because I <laughs> am just grumbling to myself when I'm trying to walk down Main Street. Okay, what busy tourist? Because I'm like, because they just take like the tourists, like the five of them will just take up the entire sidewalk and they just lackadaisically just wander. It's just yeah. like I'm trying to get back to work. I had five minutes to go get a coffee and come back. <laughs> You're in my way. I need to get back to. Work. It's called a sidewalk, not a side linger. Let's go. Yeah, seriously. I'm just, I just, just mentioned the whole it. thing. It's like there's not lanes. There are lanes. There is a forward <laughs> lane and a back lane. I just mentioned it because in where I live, like <laughs> in feels on my street, <laughs> the sidewalks are the width of this table. And whenever anyone's no, walking yeah, in the opposite true. direction, it's so annoying because you're like, why am I walking in this person's yard? Yeah, like, no, it's, it's like a standoff <laughs> game of chicken. Like, who's going to who's gonna walk in the grass? And my <laughs> campus has these little, like, delivery robots for, like, food delivery. <laughs> and they just chase you down and they just start beeping at you if you're in front of them and they're trying to go <laughs> faster than you. Dude, that's like, uh, yeah, that was my experience at Holland. I have, like, low-key PD, uh, PTSD from, like, bike... Um, what do you call them? Um, the bells? Bells, yeah. Okay. Because if you're ding, walking ding. in the street, all you hear is ding, 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 and then you have to just leap out of the way. The bikes will not, like, be happy, and they will always go to your left. I mean, like, it's the Dutch. They're very, you know, about their rules, but you just hear that little ding, 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 and you're like, Panic alarm. leaped out of the way, and I, I did it when I first moved back, and it was like, it was this little, like, eight-year-old girl that was just, like, playing with her bell, and I'm like, ah! <laughs> Leaping into traffic. No, but thanks for sharing all that uh, good info, Malcolm. I think a lot of locals even might be surprised by that tiny and Wally Bronner connection there that many may not even know about. So mm-hmm. very enlightening. So we're going to keep the fun moving here. We've got a fun little game here to play. Two, right. two truths and a lie. Oh, so, I do like this segment. Yeah. So for our listeners. All truth. <laughs> <laughs> For our listeners, these are all truth. No, I'm actually going to give you three supposed truths, and one of them is actually a lie, and you have to guess which one is the lie. That's the well, game. Now I'm never going to be able to trust you again. All right, so set of truths number one. During our annual Bavarian Fest, which is in each June, you'll see men and women dressed in lederhosen and dirndls, and if you pay True. special... <laughs> How come you're ruining the game? <laughs> if you pay special attention, you'll notice women wear their aprons or women wear uh, their bows on their aprons differently. If tied on the left, it signals one is signal. If tied on the right, it signals you're married. And if tied on the back, it signals one is a widow or a child. That's fact number one. Number two, the Maypole dance originated as a Lutheran tradition celebrating the second part of the Lutheran liturgical calendar. The Maypole dance symbolizes spreading scripture around the world. That is fact number two. Sorry to end it on such a high note. Sounded like I was going to keep going there. <laughs> number three, the pretzel often thought to originate in Germany was actually invented by an Italian monk around 610 CE. I'm saying the Maypole one. Mm. Have you ever seen Midsummer? Okay. <laughs> that doesn't look very Lutheran to me. 
<laughs> yeah, that's a tricky one. I mean, there were so many details in the first one. It felt like there was just way too many details in the in the Durndal. It would um, be it would be something Nathan would do though to just switch the like right and left. Yeah, just, it's way <laughs> no. That's too something deep. you would do. No, Nathan yeah. would never play that dirty. You would play that dirty and give us one minor technical detail within the grammar of a sentence to throw us McDonald's off. McDonald's sells a hundred a million hamburgers. No, it's actually a million and one guys. Yeah, no. that would be Garrett. <laughs> No, how I, many feet in hamburgers? They are actually that? the vendors of a million. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the maypole one—I've never heard it tied to Lutheranism. That yeah. that threw up a red flag to me. I would be very shocked by the pretzel, uh, be, but at the same time, not surprised if that makes any sense. Because however, I feel like I've never had an thing. Italian pretzel that's not from like an American food service company. Yeah, but like, <laughs> but food is always like that too. Yeah, like food is from. A place, but then it gets completely associated with something else. Right, like you know pizzas, I mean? like roots in China, as opposed to like Italy and things yeah, like that. Yeah, but then it kind of just like transmorphifies into like some other culture just because they sort of adopt it in such a meaningful way. So I am with Garrett. The Maypole has nothing to do with Lutheranism and spreading things around. It's about putting flowers in your hair, having fun, <laughs> and then burning shoving an your of crappy bear. boyfriend <laughs> into a bear and burning it. <laughs> Final answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. You're both correct. Ah, that yeah. is the lie. Uh, so the Maypole dance. Burn the boyfriend. Burn the boyfriend. <laughs> so the Maypole dance. Its or- origins are a little murky, but most historians agree that it was actually a pagan tradition, basically a celebration of the warmer weather of spring. Yeah. Fair so enough. As many just- celebrations we find are. Really, like yeah. it's just a changing of the seasons for that, the most part. It seems too fun for Lutherans. I'm not gonna lie. Like, <laughs> that, that's the kind of fun that pagans have. Like, let's just throw up a pole and dance around it. Like, yeah, no, that screams paganism in the best way. <sighs> All right, God, I love Midsummer. Great movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one for one. Let's see if we can go two for two. Next set of not confident truths. <laughs> Levi Strauss, a German American businessman who founded the first company to manufacture blue jeans, came from the Bavarian town of Buttenheim. <laughs> That's the response I was looking for. It's insensitive, can't laugh. <laughs> Levi came from Buttenheim. <laughs> Number two, German chocolate cake was invented by a woman in Dallas, Texas. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> And number three, the name Ludwig, the surname of many a Bavarian royalty, literally translates to, quote, loaded wig, end quote. All right. Ooh, so I'm, I'm again going to go first. Uh, the Levi Strauss thing, I'm pretty sure is the false. And this is only because I saw a TikTok about Estonia and Estonian state claim to the invent. It's Estonia or Latvia. I can't remember which one states okay. claim to the invention of the blue jeans and Levi ah. Strauss. Interesting. Okay. I um, might be wrong. I might have just not paid too much attention to that TikTok, but that's might, what I took to You away. might be. You might be. I, mm. There's no way life is wonderful enough to give us the fact <laughs> that Levi was from Buttontog or whatever it was. Buttonheim. Buttonheim. <laughs> that's even better. There's no way life is that good. How I, how I, greet, that well. uh, how I greet my German friends. Buttontog. <laughs> That's actually how uh, German sports teams all congratulate each other. But I'm but Yes. Um, I feel like that's the lie, but it was the f- yeah. 
The German chocolate cake, again, for the exact same reason that we said about the pretzel last time, I feel like that just is how life tends to work. That woman um, from Dallas probably wasn't even German. That was probably just the first thing that came to her mind when she was making German chocolate cake. Yeah. She's like, yeah, it's German. <laughs> Why not? <You> know? <laughs> um, what was what was the third one, though? Uh, the Name Ludwig. Surname oh. of many Bavarian royalty literally translates to loaded wig. I mean, I could see that one, you know what I mean? Like, that one's not too far-fetched to me. It doesn't feel like he made it up. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't want to waste too much time on this. I'm with Garrett. Garrett, you 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 were right the first time. I'll, I'll give you the second one. <clears throat> yeah, I, I feel like I didn't pay enough attention to the TikTok. <laughs> you were wrong, and life is that good. The no, Levi Strauss was enough. from Buttenheim. Buttenheim. <laughs> uh, the Dallas woman that invented German chocolate cake um, sh- that is also oh. true. Oh, okay. um, she utilized a sweet chocolate, which was created by a man named Samuel German, but he was an English American baker. So yeah, uh, the so lie then German. <laughs> the lie was Ludwig. Um, mm-hmm. Ludwig actually means quote famous warrior. So that makes sense. Not even close to loaded wig. I also That's should have paid attention <laughs> that in most of the cases of people who I actually know who are German who ca- carry the name. Ludwig, it's a first name. It's not always a surname. Like in America, it's usually the surname. Mm. Uh, because Ludwig von, Be- von Beethoven, you know? Yeah. All right. I've got one last one for you. It's not really two truths and one lie. It sort of is. But s- since I know that you two are not originally from Frankenmuth, I thought this one might trip you up. So We've been outed. <laughs> <laughs> which of the following has never been a Frankenmuth festival? Oh. Snowfest. Krabby Clam and Lobster Fest, Wiener Schnitzel Fest, or bringing back the 80s Fest. Uh, schnitzel. Which has not been a Frankenmuth Festival. I was going with the, cra- the Clam one just because I know Snowfest and bringing back the 80s are things. I know those are things, yeah. But, so it's definitely between the middle two. I feel like we're close enough to enough water uh, that that's a thing. And I feel like the Schnitzel is a red herring because it's so German. I just hate seafood with a passion, so I just can't believe that there'd be you a clam festival. Like, but, that's the thing, but that's the thing is the people that like it love it. That's true. So that I could see supporting an entire festival for because it is so diverse. You can do so true. much with it. Schnitzel is schnitzel. <laughs> I just love schnitzel. And I just don't I don't see a whole festival around it. I do too, but I, I don't see a, a whole festi- festival around it and I don't I think it's a red herring. So I, I'm, I, I'm still locking in. I just hate seafood. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the lie is Wiener Schnitzel. Never Frank. been a Frankenmuth festival. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm wins this round. <sighs> Logic the crap out of that. No red herrings for me. <laughs> Let's go. That's how much I don't like seafood. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so far we've established, right, many of the origins for why Frankenmuth became Bavarianized, in Malcolm's words. Um, Garrett, let's switch a little bit. And what makes Frankenmuth Bavarian? What defines oh, that for us? I, I can't answer. I didn't do the notes. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but Garrett, they're right there. <laughs> Garrett didn't do his homework. <laughs> I never do it. Um, so I just want to continue my ever-loving role as they pointed out that I am way too into the weeds about the details and I am the fun-loving contrarian of the podcast. Um, I just want to just throw out this random little disclaimer and then I'm going to qualify like why I think things happened the way that they did. But Frankenmuth in name, origin, and everything else is Franconian. That's not Bavarian. 
It's very different. Uh, it's a subset of Germans in a region of Germany that descends from the Franks, who, if you don't want to get into ancient history, the Franks are really who just started France. They're the, they're the ancient roots of France, but it's interesting. So if you were to tell a modern-day inhabitant of Franco- Franconian, or if you were to ask a modern-day inhabitant of Franconia if they were Bavarian, you would be met with an angry lecture about how they are Franconian, Franken, not Bavarian, Bayern. Um, Franconia, however, occupies the northwestmost corner of the modern German state of Bavaria. And in practice, much of the distinction between these regions has been lost to time. Like, Franconia was uh, annexed by Bavaria very early in, like, the modern era. It was around the 1300s, 1400s. And it's been kind of, like, culturally just overtaken by Bavaria. And one of the other things that I just want to like um that i just want to to note is that if you were to ask an american like what they know beyond just like what is stereotypically german the things they know about germany is going to be most associated with bavaria anyways like they're going to be able to tell you that bavaria is in germany as opposed to like franconia are That's you okay <laughs> once i start i have a hard time just stopping so no, i'm sorry and I just also wanted to note that I went to the German American Festival in Oregon, Ohio, uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was looking at their little vendors. <laughs> you faked me out on that one. <laughs> uh, but I went to their their vendor uh, stalls, and you can buy a pin that carries the fr- the crest of Bavaria, but you can't buy a pin that carries the crest of Franconia. So yeah. just kind of goes to note that like Franconia has been lost to time. And even though the, the settlers would have known that they were Franconian at like their roots, people today don't really care it's that much anymore. It's literally in the name. Exactly. Uh, and then also Babel, which is Duolingo's uh, language learning rival, notes that Franconian and Bavarian dialects are extremely similar anyways. Mm. Um, which is one of the things that we know, like there are books that have been written and lectures given about how the German version of, or the Frankenmuth version of German, their dialect that they carry is extremely unique, but it's still very similar to a Bavarian dialect anyways. Um, So Malcolm highlighted where the idea of the Bavarian image for town comes from, uh, but I'm just going to explain what that actually means. What, What is a Bavarian image supposed to look like? All right. Where, where am I at? Where am I at? There we go. Uh, also, just wanted to note one, else, one final thing is that we are not completely lost to our Franconian roots. The FHA's logo is the Franconian rake, and uh, that is also present in some of like the original Bavarian crest as well as the Frank- Franconian rakes in there. The Bavarian architecture is characterized by the half-exposed uh, timbered exposed wooden frames and many of Frankenmuth's landmarks carry this on Main Street but also a lot of the houses on Genesee Street as you're walking in or driving into town carry this style. It's known as Fachwerk in German and serves both a decorated and load-bearing purpose. I like how you frame that like I've always had a tough time of trying to capture what that alpine look is but that sort of half-timbered expression Mm -hmm. that you use that's a really good expression to think about malcolm noted that there's also like that exposed kind of like mud drywall looking thing that's Mm -hmm. the other half of like fachwerk is the it's just the timber on the outside but also exposed kind of mud um bavarian architecture is also known to be extremely colorful which is something i mentioned earlier about the mcdonald's is 
the homogenization of Frankenmuth buildings takes that away in a in a sense, but like a normal Bavarian or Alpine village is going to um, have a little more color in their town. And really the most colorful buildings I can think of in Frankenmuth are the McDonald's and maybe even the Cheese House, which is a little yellow. <laughs> a little. <laughs> um and Malcolm again noted that beginning in the 1950s, Frankenmuth made this shift towards Bavarian architecture. And one of the things I found in the collection um, is a toy model of City Hall that on the back, it has a little inscription that the Bavarian architecture is to celebrate our Bavarian heritage, mm-hmm. which then easily transitions into my next point. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so... Many people won't even know what like a Bavarian custom or tradition is or like what, what Bavarian people are supposed to look like. And the major icon of what Frankenmuth does that looks Bavarian is our Bavarian fest. Um, so the traditional Bavarian dress is called Trachten. Um, and that's like the dirndl in the later hosen, which apparently we found out that if on your dirndl, your apron has a, a bow on one side, it means one thing. And if it's on the other, it means the other thing. Um, Don't mess it up. Don't mess it up. That's why I didn't even even try. Um, But the other part of Bavarian culture that is most noteworthy to an American audience is the beer drinking and like traditional pretzel and vice first, which is white sausage. Um, But beer drinking isn't just like that typical like party bro, like, ah, the Bavarians love to drink beer. They have extremely specific rules about what their beer is supposed to tastes like what's going into their beer it differentiates them from other german cultures so beer drinking is not just one of those fun like let's get let's get lit sort of things it's actually very ingrained in how they see themselves and then nate lit means to have fun essentially (laughs) thank you for expressing that to boomer nate he appreciates it you're welcome you're welcome um and then the final thing I want to note that makes Frankenmuth Bavarian, because you notice this as you go up to like the River Place shops or even in the Frank or Frankenmuth like city crest, is the blue and white checker, which mm-hmm. is the unofficial flag of Bavaria. It's essentially it's become official as time has gone on. A lot of Bavarian institutions carry that checker. It's called the Ines Kuchon, um, and it was dated and adopted back to the House of Wittelsbach in the 13th century. And yeah, we just see that blue and white checker all over the place in Frankenmuth. A lot of like Bavarian color schemes also carry that like light blue color because yeah. of the, the flag. So it's especially blue. Yeah. Especially during Bavarian Fest, you see all those flags. And I think there was like every business in town is displaying those flags in yeah. some sort of way. I think we were like one day late last year than we normally are like putting those flags up. <laughs> locals let us know. We, yeah. we had to get those up. <laughs> Um, so no, thanks Garrett. Thanks for, uh, sharing all that, uh, fun little nuggets. So I've got a few, uh, just to kind of close here to talk about some landmarks of Frank Muth that you may not know are necessarily Bavarian and origin essentially. So first is the Zwiebel term. These are basically onion towers. They look just like onions that adorn the top of buildings. They're usually really big. Um, And in Bavaria, they frequently top a lot of churches or courthouses, Mm. city halls, things like that. Well, in 1972, the first one was constructed at Bavarian and Restaurant. And then later on, just a few years ago, uh, we had a 23-foot copper onion dome that 
now tops the cheese house. And so I was reading, um, M live did a really nice article on this and they interviewed during the kind of the grand opening and when mm-hmm. they were hoisting it up and installing it. Um, this onion tower was actually built in Kentucky and then it was shipped 500 miles um, up here to Frankenmuth and it's 23 feet tall. So this is a massive endeavor to try to ensure that Frankmuth um, looks Bavarian, right? Like Malcolm said, it's a very it started as a very intentional effort, and people are sparing no expense to make yeah. sure this happens, right? Can you imagine driving like to work on like I seventy five and that thing just passes <laughs> you? <laughs> what is a giant onion doing? On that <laughs> uh, all right. So the second piece of architecture I'd like to talk to you about is the Holtzbrookie or the covered bridge in town. So a lot of people, when they see the covered bridge, it's this giant wooden bridge that spans across the Cass River. Uh, they usually think it's a really old bridge, but in all honesty, it was actually built fairly recently in 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still maintains a sort of old world element, um, and its designs and craftsmanship have much more in common with the 19th century than they do 1980, right? So the origins of the building of the covered bridge are pretty fascinating. So it was very difficult to find anybody um, around the area that would build a covered bridge, especially one of this size. And we go back again to Tiny Zender, who started a lot of this. And he remembered reading a story in the newspaper about a bridge that was built in the state of New York. The builder was Milton Grattan, and he... Tiny reached out to him, and at first, uh, Grattan was very disinterested. He's like, I'm not going to come a 1,000 miles to (laughs) build this bridge for you and spend months um, doing this. Um, But Tiny kept pestering him, kept pestering him. Oh, come on. Do it. (laughs) Do it. Come thousands of miles and spend months here to build a bridge. (laughs) Okay. So he did. Uh, Construction began in April 1979. It was a concrete and steel foundation which was constructed first and that the wooden bridge would kind of sit on top of while they built it. And then many of those pillars and foundations were removed after the bridge was completed. Um, So Grattan and his crew, which was also his family too, they ordered 125,000 feet of Douglas fir wood from Oregon. That's a lot of wood. That's a lot of wood. (laughs) That's a lot of wood to be able to build this. That's a lot of feet. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> a couple miles. <laughs> uh, the f- first step then was to build the bottom, and they built it from the center to the outside, which allowed the bridge to flex while they were building it instead mm. of kind of breaking. Um, if they would have built it the other way, it would have been just too tough to do so. Each joint was then cut with a handsaw, despite being 1980 when they had plenty of power tools available to them. Uh, let's use a it's handsaw. All about authenticity. Yeah. Um, and then they fashioned these large wooden trunnels, which are essentially these wooden spikes that are usually kind of curved more at the end. And then you hammer these in with a large sledgehammer. Um, And that's how most of the wooden bridge is pretty much connected to itself and supported is with these trunnels. And then once the bridge, most of the frame was pretty much completed, they built this track of oak rollers and they basically using two oxen um, and a yoke and like the system of pulleys that we called a capstan, they pulled the bridge across the river with a couple oh, oxen. Lord. Let's not use cranes. Let's 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 get these couple oxen. Where can you it. even get an ox? <laughs> like <laughs> like in, even in 1980, where are you finding an ox? Oxford. <laughs> Obviously. <clears throat> I don't even know what an ox looks like. 
I'm like, I'm so confused right now. <laughs> um, so the this capstan system is pretty fascinating too. Um, it's basically this pillar that you then wrap ropes around, and you usually see them on ships. Um, it's to either hoist the anchor back oh, okay. up, um, and as you pull them, it kind of keeps locking into place. So you pull a little bit, and it can lock into place. So you're up a little closer. Basically, it allowed these two oxen to pull as much weight as 360 oxen, oh, which wow. is just crazy how levers and pulleys and systems work. I don't understand it, but physics. So finally, bridge was put in place, um, and it took a few month, few more months to kind of put finishing touches on, make sure everything was secure, and the Holtzbrookie was finally dedicated in September of 1980. And instead of doing a ribbon cutting, Tiny and Eddie Zender instead did a timber sawing. So they basically took a saw and cut a board for the ribbon cutting, which is kind of fun. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. um, final little story I'll tell you about is the Glockenspiel. Um, Glockenspiels are pretty popular as well in Bavaria. Um, there is one in Munich that's very well known. All the tourists have to flock to it to, to be able to see it. And it tells the story of this royal marriage in 1568. There's all sorts of hand, um, whether they're carved or fashioned, these jousters, jesters, dancers that... Everything is timed very well to this like system of uh, bells that basically this clock is chiming this whole time telling the story, and it's, it's pretty beautiful. So Frankenmuth's Glockenspiel, uh, we have one as well. It plays daily at noon, 3, 6, and 9 o'clock, and it has a lot of hand-carved wooden figurines that were all actually imported from Germany. And this thing in total stands about 50 feet tall and was completed in 1967. But what's most interesting about it to me is that it tells the story of the Pied Piper. Are you mm. too familiar with the story of the Pied Piper? Yeah, you know, he played a flute and got rid of the rats. Okay, all right. Right? Yeah, so that's the start of it. That's the start of it. So essentially, there's this little town of Hamlin in Germany. Um, they had a plague of rats, right? This Pied Piper, this mysterious sort of figure, comes along, and he tells the mayor, I'll get rid of your rats for about a, a penny apiece. And the mayor's like, yeah, that sounds great. People are dying. Get rid of them. Thank you. So he does. The Pied Piper plays his pipe. And basically the rats are enchanted by this. And they follow him out of the town of Hamlet. So he saves the city from this plague, right? Yay. Yeah. Comes back to collect his payment. And the mayor was like, okay, I didn't know that's how you were going to do this. I think you're in work with the devil. And I don't want to pay you now. Logical. Oh, no. <laughs> So, the Pied Piper got pretty angry, and he kind of... Reasonably so. I mean, there was a verbal contract. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so he curses out the mayor, Not basically. signing verbal contract. <laughs> 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 nothing was written. I didn't sign nothing. <laughs> so, the Piper one day returned, um, and this time, the parents of the town of Hamlin, they were all at church. It was a feast day. They were all at church. Meanwhile, all the kids were allowed to just kind of stay in the streets and play. You can already kind of see where this is going. So the piper comes back. He plays this pretty like haunting melody on his pipe. It entrances the children again. And this time, the children follow the piper out of the town of Hamlin. And there's a couple different versions of how this ends. Either he takes them to the same river that he took the rats, or he takes them to a cave in the mountain. In either case, the children are never seen again. So that's the story of the Pied Piper. Um, and it plays daily at <laughs> two, three, six, and nine. You can come hear about this. Um, yeah. Wow, that's so, wild. 
And I'm not sure that was a, a proportional response. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that escalated quickly, that did, right? That did kind of escalate quickly. Yeah, like I, depends on how many rats there actually were. <laughs> I'm guessing like like a, a penny, lot, a penny per a penny rat. A rat, like yeah, five hundred rats. I mean, whew. yeah, I don't think yeah. he's come back to do this over you know like fifty bucks. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of rats. Mm-hmm. Also, I did some, I did some research uh while you were talking there an yeah. ox basically looks like a cow just found that out like they, they <laughs> yeah. look very similar please and, describe uh, like bulkier cows yeah and they got horns, horns like yeah. like more more pronounced horns and uh in the uk in 2011 you could buy an ox a pair of oxen for three thousand dollars plow plow ready Mm-hmm. Just wanted to throw that in there because I was shocked that in 1980 they were still using oxen when I have no clue where to get an Not ox. Not only were they using oxen, but they were optimizing their oxen to be <laughs> the power of 360 oxen. Now imagine what would happen if they used cranes. How fast it could have gone. <laughs> That's no way to build this covered bridge, Garrett. It's supposed no, to be yeah, old if you're going to build a bridge that <laughs> looks old... You got to build it the old way. Fair, fair enough. Yeah, no, I, I, I rest, rest on my laurels with that one. No, they did it. They did it right. They did it the right way. Making that <laughs> it poor is, man it come is ex- all the way up here to make it. <laughs> it's extremely cool. However, like listening to the way it was made, I understand. I've driven over it many times, but if you were to like sit down and just like explain the process as detailed as you did to every tourist, I wonder how many would stop going across it just out of fear. <laughs> right. Right. Um, one last fun little piece of trivia for you, too. Uh, do you know the speed limit on the covered bridge? Isn't it seven? Bingo. You got it. Seven miles per hour. It's just so, it's just so odd. That you just take your foot off the gas and just hope idle. that that's what the car does. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> getting pulled over on the covered bridge. Well, another fun fact, too, is it does have <laughs> on it. Yeah. Not like after it. Like, you stop right there, and that's where you get your ticket. The... We, I don't think we were like recording a podcast when we talked about this, but like the difference between tourists and locals going across the bridge because there's not really a ton of space, but mm-hmm. you can fit two cars. That's on what it. I was going to yes. say. Is like just it so is. everyone knows, like there are two lanes. Two cars can drive in opposite directions. It's doable. <laughs> locals, like, locals will do it. They'll just go for it. But tourists are a little afraid. And tourists <laughs> get like offended too if you're the local. Mm-hmm. moving on your way so yeah. no i literally <laughs> had that this morning on the way in actually <laughs> i ended up going the back way because they had that little construction mm-hmm. on me mm-hmm. and i wasn't sure if it was done yet or not so i went the back way and this person was just so slowly creeping <laughs> into the bridge and someone else was coming at us i'm like just go there's enough room <laughs> <laughs> but then they right. kind of like bottomed out when they got to the other end because they didn't realize that they had to like slow down because because there's a bit of a mm, yeah like a bump at the beginning and the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they were very careful about the beginning bump. They weren't so careful about the battle bump. So they kind of, you know, when dropped their tushy on the, on the road easy. there. <laughs> I mean, this isn't necessarily about the, like the the construction of it, but was there there was a pre-existing bridge there, right, before they built it? Or was that just put in? So I think this one was put in by the Zender family, for the most part, to connect the lodge to, like, Main Street uh, and the Bavarian Inn. So Frank sense. Muth had a few other bridges um some old iron bridges that were elsewhere along the Cass river right um, but yeah this this was built with that intention for sure that's very cool i thought that i thought that it was just to replace like a sort of like ugly normal bridge but it, it is actually 
Yeah. Yeah. Very Those cool. ugly normal bridges. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was really fascinated by some of the stuff <clears throat> Garrett was talking about too with like the Franconia versus Bavaria kind of thing because it is quite wild that we talk about Michigan as little Bavaria when or sorry, we talk about Frankemuth as mm-hmm. Michigan's little Bavaria when Frankemuth literally means courage of the Franconians. Franconians. It's not courage of the Bavarians. I, I had written down in my notes just like Something that I breezed over because I didn't want to didn't want to get down into the the German like language part of it, but it's sure. called Frankenmuth, not Bayernmuth. Yeah, like for a and reason. Frankenlust, Frankenhild, Frankentrost. Yeah. Like it's they're all Frankens. I will I will note though that like when we were doing earlier research into, um, like Leahy, um, he was more loyal to like the Bavarian crown than his Franconian identity. Oh, so he was a little bit more along that like Bavarian side. And by the 1800s, there might not have been that much like deep rooted like loyalty to a Franconian heritage as there was to like the Bavarian heritage. And it might just have been that they wanted to like really note that they were from this specific part of Germany. That's yeah. why it's like courage of the Franconians as opposed to courage of the Bavarians. Yeah. And my other theory with this too, which I haven't found any like concrete evidence for, um, but just socially speaking, I think when when we look at the Bavarianization of Frankenmuth in the 1960s specifically, Bavaria is a much more well known area of Germany mm-hmm. than Franconia I, ever was. I think that to me, I, that's my um, theory as to why this went about because you have like the sound of music coming out, so like that visual you know i also um, wanted to note that as the resident european historian this era of like foreign policy between the united states and west germany at this time is when west germany is really emerging as like a leading power in europe and um i think that that might have really facilitated like americans perceptions of germany yeah. following the war that made it the tourist destination that it was cuz you're right the sound of music is coming out and it's just also when the marshall plan funds that helped you restart know, the economy of europe were really kicking in and germany was they were producing the volkswagens and like the their economies really emerging again on the world stage so it might have just been like one of those like good timing. confluence of like all these different different events happening yeah. in the world um, coming along in Frankenmuth city planners were just like, this is the time where we need to make that shift if we want this to This is the thing to capitalize on. Yeah. yeah. I, I, and that's the thing too, is I think there's, there's sometimes a perception that there was like a rejection of Franconia and an embracement of Bavaria. I don't think that was the case. I yeah. think it was just Bavaria as a concept and as a visual, um, uh, I visual iconography to be it's completely frank easier. was a lot more accept, accessible. And since it, theoretically was the same area just based on when you look at the timeline um it just kind of worked so yeah and it was also the product too of just very individual decisions too i think yeah. one thing that i don't know that we mentioned um it might have been tiny zender that before bavarian Inn kind of remodeled took that bavarianization look um i th- thought i could be mistaken but i'm pretty sure that he actually sent some architects over to bavaria to kind of do some studying um to find out what makes Bavarian architecture, and then they brought those ideas back here. So, yeah, so um, everything has a history. I think when we can, uh, when we look at many tourist destinations, um, you can kind of be like, oh, this was always like this. Well, 
Not necessarily. Um, so hopefully we kind of unraveled a little bit of the mystery of why Frank Muth is known as Michigan's Little Bavaria. So thank you all for listening to another episode of Historians and Lederhosen. Be sure to drop us a review. It's the best way that you can talk about our history and share our history with others. And with that, we'll all sign off. Auf Wiedersehen.